the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state, and national politics and the real issues that really matter. You, too, can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned. Because it's on now. Hey, welcome everybody to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Hi, Henry. Good morning. Good morning, Paul. And, Good morning, Henry. Uh, and and finally, uh, joining our uh, roundtable uh, regulars um, is, uh, and it's been a while since she's been on, the 2018 Green Party candidate for governor of Michigan, Jennifer Curland. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Tom. Hi, Henry. Hi, Paul. How are y'all Good doing? Morning, uh, Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Jennifer. Um, as uh, as you all know, now it's been a while since Jennifer has uh, has been on the show, but it's good to have her uh, back as part of our roundtable. We always start with a few quotes, and the first one is our finish the quote uh, section where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? If you want to succeed, you should strike out on new paths rather than what? Um. Balder in your footsteps. In the way you've always done things. It's in the old path. Yeah. 
That's actually pretty good, Paul. That's that's pretty close to the original quote. If you want to succeed, you should strike out on new paths rather than travel the worn paths of accepted success. Mm, great. You know who, who said that? that? A good one. I'm trying to think yep. who said that. Yeah, I don't know. John D. Rockefeller. Oh, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> anyway, and he, uh, he he traveled a lot on the worn-out path because he was so successful. <laughs> yeah. And he had a lot of money. Yeah, he, yeah I think he, he, he paid for an awful lot of paths, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> if, if anyone would know about traveling the worn paths of accepted success, it would be John D. Rockefeller. I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the quote of the week is going to be easy to figure out who said it. It's, uh, it's, it goes like this. Um, successful presidents better than me have been successful in large part because they've known how to time what they're doing. Uh, Joe Biden. It was, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. President Joe Biden. He was convening his first formal news conference Thursday, and uh, he stepped into a swirl of issues that have bubbled up at, uh, at the two-month mark of his presidency, which has been almost exclusively focused until now on confront confronting the coronavirus pandemic. Is President Biden showing a skill for setting and prioritizing an agenda plus how and when to move it forward? He really seems big on this timing issue. That's, that's what kind of t gave it away to me when he, when you use the word timing, because Biden's <clears throat> used that so often about hitting certain, certain issues at certain times. It seems like it's kind of a main way he operates. You know, I, I've, I've been uh, studying Biden for quite a while, and to see how coherent he is in responding to issues. But I think he's just trying to take too many issues at once. And he's fighting this issue in one moment and that issue, and it's just too much. He has to coherently organize himself <clears throat> in such a way that he follows through and the American people can follow through. And they could uh, digest what he's doing but he's got he's got foreign policy issues abroad with Russia and Korea, and then all of a sudden he got the the, the, the uh, COVID issues here, and then he got the border walls and stuff like that. And there's just too much there. Well, and that was interesting. I don't know whether I could even do that. <laughs> well, if anyone could, Henry, you could. That's right, Henry. Um, but I, well, I, I thought it was interesting in in. Paul, you're you're right to underscore that um, that issue of timing because it's he was being pressed about issues that are coming up and coming up rapidly. Things about gun control and what's going on at the yeah. uh, at the border and and some of these other things. And that's when he said, "There's an order to this." <laughs> you know, you, you do what you can. I think he spent a lot of political capital on his uh, COVID relief package. And then he turns around and instead of going to gun control or um, reproductive rights or any of these other hot button issues, he goes to infrastructure and everybody wants infrastructure. Yeah going to be a, a, a little bit an easier sell than the other ones would be. And you know, I think the other thing he's got to realize in terms of timing is this, that any president gets most of the things done in their first couple of years, and especially 
with the 2022 elections coming up, I mean, those are often very tough for the party in the White House. And Biden's got just a very narrow margin in the Senate and in the House. And those are both at risk. So I think uh, there's pressure on him to get what he can done in those first two years, because you never know what's going to happen after that. I think there's also no, I don't the remember. timing thing. They've they've set out what they want to do for the beginning of his administration. So I think that he's just not going to deviate from whatever that plan was, pretty much yeah. no matter what happens. And I don't remember when a president had to deal with so many issues at once, and he had to solve them right then and there. They prioritize things. And there's just too much. And I think and the... the the Republicans are also part of that pressure that's on them to do these things. Uh, but somebody has to step back and let the president organize his strategies. Well, moving on to the uh, to another quote <laughs> that got an awful lot of attention, at least here in Michigan. Our job is now to soften up those three witches and make sure that we have good <laughs> candidates to run against them, that they are ready for the burning at the stake. The Republican Party chair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was the Michigan Republican Party chairman and University of Michigan Board of Regents member Ron Weiser. He issued an apology of sorts Saturday after he called the three highest-ranking elected female leaders in the state witches who should be ready for the burning at the stake and referenced assassination in the context of ousting GOP congressmen. Uh, the move came as uh, Weiser scrambled behind the scenes last weekend to tamp down growing outrage over comments he made during a recent speech. How inappropriate was Chairman Weiser's comment, or Weiser's comment, uh, despite the fact it got a big laugh from the attendees at the speech? I think it yeah. was appropriate for the time frame that Republicans want us to go back to. Republicans would be very happy if we went back to like you know public burnings and you oh. know condemning women who have sex as witches and all those kinds of things. <laughs> now before before Henry gets offended, no I'm going to say not not all Republicans <laughs> are right? are that, that backward looking. Put on everything, right? Like not all, whatever. <laughs> Well, you kind of you kind of do have to. Um, otherwise, we fall into this trap that a lot of people are in of, you know, I'm right and you're a moron. Well, you know, I I think ahead, that man. Ron Weiser was really made a big mistake in a time when it uh, anything that you throw out there is political. So um, that will. The party has to suffer um, this indignation that he's brought upon him, and they have to figure out a way how to get out of that. But I, I, I'm surprised that Ron Reiser would do such a thing as that. And in addition to that, Ron Reiser, when he was elected to the chair, there was a lot of controversy over him, and, the, and many Republicans don't support Ron. So he's on a really... Uh, and besides, he not only maybe have uh, angered Democrats, but he angered some Republicans, too. Do you think he'll so be forced to resign? Like, well, I don't think that we can move. I don't think the party will live with that. 
uh, it has to clean itself up. But although Ron Weiser might have uh, really been sincere about that, and and knowing how difficult it was for the legislature to work with the governor and those uh, two ladies, uh, he uh, took a chance on uh, making something funny there that would cause them to think about uh, how they appear to people who don't agree with them. Yeah. I I, I see that... uh did anybody see the, the uh, Facebook meme where, where Governor Whitmer was posed with a uh, book about witches? I, I assume it was a Photoshop. I don't. No, think I haven't. Good. I haven't seen that yet, but, <laughs> but I'll keep an eye out for yeah, it. Yeah, I, I saw it last night when I was scrolling around. But again, I, I assume it was not a genuine photo. I, I, I'm guessing it was Photoshop, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, you remember that? Was it a congressional candidate out east who uh, oh, ran right. the commercial that <laughs> opened with "I'm not a witch"? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I recall that one. Well, <laughs> I thought of that as soon as I read that quote. If you remember last week, sorry, it's kind of a boring old trope at this point, isn't it? Right, like calling women witches. I mean, how many hundreds of years are we going to keep using the same insult <laughs> yeah. before it stops being an insult? <laughs> well, we've ruined all of the uh, the old words of tradition. We have to turn to some new words that grab attention, I guess. <laughs> well, didn't Weiser also threaten to assassinate some Republicans who had voted to remove Trump? Yeah. So there, there was also that, that kind of threat, too, which is even maybe, maybe even odder, if, if anything could be odder than that. Well, and that's th- that's the thing that's uh, that's so interesting about this quote. Now, obviously, uh, Chairman Weiser it made the mistake that a lot of people have made, Republicans and Democrats and maybe even some Green Party people. But uh, <laughs> is thinking you could use that kind of incendiary rhetoric with the audience you're speaking to without realizing that it was going to get picked up everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think Ron Weiser really stepped into boo-boo because the population is uh, is just like Ron Weiser. Uh, they will send their elected officials to Lansing and say, hey, you make sure you get this done for us and delineate anything else uh, and do it the way we want you to do it or we'll, we'll get rid of you or whatever. So uh, he's reflecting the attitudes of people, and the people need to help organize a strategy where people can become civil again, because without civil order in society, you're not going to have it in the leadership. I'm sorry. And everybody's guilty, irrespective of race, gender, age, everybody's into it. And look at the model that we're creating for our kids. Uh, who will? Who is? Who is um, taking a look at how we govern ourselves, and will be able to use this model in the years ahead? We may not ever get any better. Well, on that note, we need to take a short break, but uh, we'll have more armchair politics uh, on the other side of the break. And uh, we have with us our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by. Um, Jennifer Curland, and we're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Jennifer Curland. District Court Judge Judith Levy has denied a motion to give adults and children more time to register to opt in or opt out of the water crisis settlement. The decision was made during a Friday uh, March 26th hearing held after Philadelphia attorney Mark Cuker, who represents uh, approximately 1,300 Flint residents in federal water cases, uh, asked to extend the registration period to May 17th. It is time to get to work registering residents, Levy said. Genesee County Circuit Court Judge Joseph Farah agreed with Judge Levy's decision. He said, um, this is the time for late night pizza and Coca-Cola's if you need them. Get all hands on deck and get everybody filling out these forms. They take about 10 minutes to fill out and you're registered. You can take whatever action you want after registration, but this does not seem arduous at all to me and certainly not, I agree with Judge Levy, a reason to change the deadline. Was the timeline adequate? I mean, we're in a pandemic. Of course not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I mean, they need they need to reach people who, you know, are low income, don't have easy access to things like a printer at their house to like look up something online. You know, there's all sorts of barriers across Flint from people being able to get this information in a timely manner. I mean, how long did it take the state to even tell everyone that the that there was a crisis going on? You know, I mean, that's that should be the standard of how long it takes to tell everyone to sign on to a lawsuit. Yeah, but this is about money, and people gravitate toward money. Money is a magnet. You you do what you need to do to get the money. And I think that uh, people sometimes make excuses and stall. We need to get this behind us and get on with other issues that's plaguing Flint very, very badly. There there were huge lines at the the lawyers' offices over the weekends people trying to register who who were trying to get in at the last minute. So I, as I say, for, for many of us, we got the, the, the forms early and, and all that. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people who don't have online uh, connections and, and and all of that, I, I, there are so many stories about people who just weren't aware of this until the very last minute. So probably a few more weeks wouldn't have done any harm. Well, they they got to get going. Um, yeah. the, this thing started back in 19, uh, 2015, I believe, somewhere in there. People had a position on it. And by that time, they sort of had a strategy on what they were going to do when the opportunity came about. But to drag this through uh, another continuously, it won't get any better. It'll get worse. And I uh, judge fair, I believe that's generally fair. And uh, so I have no objection to the ruling that he made. He must have thought through it for a long time because yeah. I know the judge. Well, was it last so, week uh, I shared the Bob Winford quote about nobody's fairer than Judge Joe Farah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, I so think I, there's, I, a lot I, of, there's a lot of ahead. people that are also wary about you know, this lawsuit too, which is why they didn't sign on right away because, you know, they they don't know, you know, what's going to happen. Is that going to give them 
you know, the reparations that they need, or is it not? They were holding out for more money, and the decision had been made somehow that the six 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 hundred forty six million dollars, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, six hundred forty-one million, and there were people being encouraged to hold out longer. So there's a there's a game that we play in this process, and it even happens between lawyers who represent individuals represent the state. But somehow we need to get this done. Well, yeah, there's still a big issue of how much the lawyers ought to be paid. You know, they, they initially <laughs> asked for a third, a third of the settlement, and uh, that's still still in, in dispute. Yeah, I hear a new well, number being kicked around of 20%. Well, well, as I, opposed I, to I, the 32%. Yeah. Well, I've said that let the market take care of it. Uh, if people don't want to pay more than uh, 10%, that's where we go. If they want to pay more than 20 that's it. It's settled. Well, a court date has been set for a contracting firm cited by Michigan officials for allegedly dumping construction material in a Flint neighborhood rather than oh. properly disposing it. Uh, W.T. Stevens is to appear for a pretrial hearing before Genesee County District Judge David Gwynn at 8.30 uh, a.m. Well, was scheduled this past Monday at 8.30 a.m. The former contractor received more than $27 million from the city of Flint to replace lead pipes. He was cited by both the Genesee County Drain Commission and the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy, or EGLE, for failing to have a soil erosion plan at the dump site. W.T. Stevens was also cited for placing leftover construction material, including soil, concrete, and debris, commonly called spoils, in a north side Flint neighborhood instead of properly disposing of it. Do these acts show a lack of respect? For the city of Flint, oh, I would think, particularly yeah. in this context. I mean, for for any construction company, but especially when you're doing construction to clean up the the pipes and all that. I mean, it's just it's astonishing to when that story broke. Do you know how many laws this guy broke when he did that? Something could be possibly hazardous waste in a neighborhood yeah. where people live, and. Uh, exposing kids to that and stuff like that. There are a lot and runoff through the water that contaminates the Flint River or contaminates the ground. Mm -hmm. He broke a lot of laws and need to be, need yeah. to, the state needs to get the money back. I mean, the sad thing is that this is a regular practice for a lot of businesses. This happens in Detroit often, especially in lower income, you know, and more rundown neighborhoods. Um, so I'm just glad that someone got caught doing it, right? Yes, so I mean, I'm sure the book that they're going to throw at him is not much of a book, but I hope they throw it at him. <laughs> he didn't yeah. have much money to begin with. <laughs> they, they need a bigger book. Right. Yeah. It's pretty common in parts of Flint. You know what strikes me as strange about some of the dumping? Not so much the commercial stuff, but you drive around, you see people have, have tossed couches and household yes. furniture and things. And what strikes me as odd is this, is that if you want to get rid of that, you can just haul it out to the curb and the trash will pick it up. But if you're going to dump it in somebody else's lot, you got to drag it out of your house, put it in a truck, I assume, drive someplace, drag it out of the truck, and throw it in a lot. It strikes me as even more work 
for, for again for a non-commercial operation for someone to go out and dump the stuff. But people do it all the time, and I, I don't quite understand the logic of it. Well, I think you see and you run the risk of being exposed. Well, I think you see that more from like landlords who are cleaning out property who don't want to like put it on the curb and have to pay like an extra bulk pickup or something for so much stuff. They'll just take things and, and dump it. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. Well, speaking of timelines uh, and moving on to uh, Lansing, Michigan's redistricting commission will ask the state Supreme Court to extend the deadline for adopting new congressional and legislative districts to January 25th, 2022, nearly three months past the deadline that's set in Michigan's Constitution. The Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission made the decision during a meeting Thursday adopting the resolution because of delays in the release of census data. The state's constitution requires the commission to adopt new maps by November 1st and allow 45 days for public comment on any proposed maps before approving the final versions. Under the constitution, the latest the commission could propose the maps is September 17th, but the Census Bureau says it will deliver redistricting data to states by September 30th, six months past the federal deadline for doing so. The Bureau cited COVID-19-related delays. Rather than wait to see whether the data will arrive in time for the Commission to meet its redistricting deadlines, the group of randomly selected citizens that make up the Commission decided to take a proactive approach. Should an extension be allowed in this instance? Well, you need the oh, census yeah. data. Yeah, I think you have to. Yeah, yeah. Without the census data, you can't do much, as far as I understand it. So I, I'm afraid that well, kind of what's forces their what's hands. the alternative? Push it to the next election cycle. That's uh, that's well, which I think off. probably yeah. violates a clause in the Michigan Constitution, right? If it's yeah. not, cause I would assume that we jive with the federal constitution, so we have to follow, you know, the redistricting guidelines. And yeah, if you want buy-in, you got to let the people have a little bit of words. I don't know what they would achieve if if this is something that's done arbitrarily by somebody else. You lay it out there. You have the the knowledge and the tools and everything to put it out there. So, what would uh, such a public hearing uh, accomplish? I mean, I you got to you review the map and what would be the pros and cons. I mean, what would it do? I mean, it's going to be a tight scramble for the 2022 election. I mean, if, if when those things get done, I know. you're going to see a lot of candidates scrambling to figure out what district they're in and how they're going to run and all the rest. So it, it could be tough. Yeah. It could be tough. Well, I think you'll probably see people, like, announcing that they're going to run um, in, you know, a specific area without having the actual lines drawn. Yet. Right, yeah. Do you think they'll just announce that they're running in the existing configuration and then adjust to whatever the differences are, or do you think they'll speculate about what the di- the new districts might be? I think if your speculation depend, is... You know, I mean, there's certain areas, you know, like someone who lives in Redford who's going to run for, you know, state rep in Redford is going to run and say that they're running in Redford. 
You know what I mean? Whether or not that includes a part of Detroit or yeah. a part of another community, they're going to start where they live and just, you know, start running there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, sure. I, I yeah. think it'll be a little bit like gray for a little while. And I would always think if you're a candidate, you, you know, you, you, you'll announce early and then if, once you see the final map, if you come to the conclusion you've got no chance, you may, you can always withdraw. But I think you're going to have to But you better guess right. <laughs> because the high population density that's True. favorable to you may be in that area just outside your new district. Yeah, that's so you're yeah. off. I think you're going to have a much harder time, you know, for people in highly dense populations like Flint and like yes. Detroit. Yes. You know, people who yes. are going to be running, it's going to be much mm -hmm. harder for them to, um, you know, do anything more than announce that they're going to run. Um, or maybe, like, buy some fines. Or, you know what I mean? Like, there's certain things you can do when you're running that you don't necessarily need your full geography for. So there's probably going to be, like, websites and lawn signs and things like that, and then people will reconfigure them once everything's drawn up. Do you remember the panic that uh, Dale Kildy went through when he was still in the Congress and they changed the district to include parts of what was then a very Republican Oakland County. Yes, I remember. That that was one of killed his closest races. He there was one race in that in that era when he, I mean he he, he won, but it was a very relatively close race for Kildy. Yes. Yeah. Well, Michigan Republican senators joined a national push Wednesday seeking new election regulations and restrictions following a conservative movement calling for changes despite no evidence of widespread voting fraud or misconduct associated with the 2020 election. While GOP leaders say the bills will make it easier to vote and harder to cheat, Democrats and other opponents argue the proposals will restrict voting and are premised on lies perpetuated by former President Donald Trump and his supporters. The proposals drawing the most ire would introduce new identification requirements for requesting absentee ballots, uh, prohibit the Secretary of State from making absentee ballot applications available online, ban clerks from supplying prepaid return postage for absentee ballots, bar clerks from counting absentee ballots in the weeks leading up to the election and impose new requirements for ballot drop boxes. Why is showing identification to vote so controversial? Well, I mean, the largest thing about showing ID to vote is, you. I mean, when I first voted, you didn't have to. There was no identification. You said who you were, you got marked off on the book, and that was it. You can only vote once. So the ID requirement is specifically there to, for people who are low income, who cannot afford a driver's license. Um, now, some states like Michigan, we now have, you know, like a free state ID, but you still have to get to a place and you have to show specific amounts of identification to get that ID. And so it's a barrier for people who are low income. That's what that is. Yeah, but you have, you have a, a large cycle between elections. Between this election and the next election, you certainly can make it into the ID place and pick up an ID. And besides, I have never had an experience where they didn't ask for my ID. So I don't see the problem. Guys, I, honestly, I do not see a problem here. And well, if, if people can have ID of some kind when they go in, into a, um, a voting poll place, 
how did they how are they able to transact business from day to day uh, when you go into a liquor store you have to show ID uh, when you go to the bank you got to show ID well, if you get stopped by the police, you've got to show ID. And ID is a part of our life. And uh, I, don't, I don't understand the problem. And the, the bottom line is that the cheating has been shown to be such a minuscule part of the reality. I mean, there's, for all the talk about cheating and all that, there just isn't very much of it. It's, it's, and, and it goes in kind of a bipartisan way as well. And even the few cases that were found this past year, you found as many... Democratic examples as Republican examples, so it, it really has not really been a, a, a major problem, uh, certainly in recent elections. And, and you know, and I don't, I don't think that African Americans object to having ID. It's being driven to them by political ideology. Well, you're, here's, you're, here's you're, the barrier. You've got okay. someone who's in a you know domestic violence situation who does not have access to their ID because their abusive partner has it. You have people who are elderly who may have people who have been in different, you know, situations, people who are children who had abusive parents, whose parents did not give them, you know, their birth certificates and social security cards and stuff. So then they have to go and they have to get them. But you have to pay to get a new social security card and you have to find all the ways to get that. You have to pay to get a new birth certificate. You have to find all the ways to do that. You have to show all of these proofs to a secretary of state. You know, and so there's a, there are a lot of barriers for people who are low income in order to physically go and get an ID. It's not just showing up to a secretary of state office. And there's a lot of different reasons why someone might not be able to have an ID, including being homeless. You know, people who mm -hmm. don't have access to safe housing, um, you know, that there is a direct barrier for them to getting an ID because they don't have an address. And so there's a lot of different things that, that are barriers in place for people to be able to get an ID. And if we have a good voting system that marks a voter when they vote, why do we need to ask someone for their ID? They're already signing an affidavit saying that they are who they are. So they're signing a legal document saying that they are who they are when they vote. There's no need for identification. Yeah, but you raise well, an that, interesting that is point. Not the, that's not the reality, though. When you, the reality is that people cheat. Yeah, no, that's the, that's the reality. I've worked elections in our state for 20 so years. Have I. But that's a, but that's and, uh, the reality is that people cheat. But that's an interesting and, and complicated element, um, Jennifer, when you bring up homeless people, because voting is unfortunately tied to addresses, but in some ways, how else would you ensure that, say, people in the wards in the city of Flint, that somebody lives in that particular ward and should vote in that particular ward, as opposed to somebody who, you know, lives in a doorway uh, on Saginaw Street one month and the next month lives under a, a bridge in the north end somewhere? I think they should be voting wherever they're living at the time that they're that the vote is. I mean, when people vote, they should be voting where they're living at the time that they're living because that's how voting works, right? So just because someone doesn't have a permanent address does not mean that they've, you know, have no right to vote. 
You know, I was going to add above and beyond the ID issue. I mean, this whole batch of bills really is aimed at reducing turnout. I mean, uh, in terms of limiting absentee ballot, limiting the drop boxes, limiting hours, prohibiting a mail out of ballots, all of that is really a heart of all of this comes out of this whole Alex stuff and an attempt to reduce the turnout. Uh, and make oh, it just yeah. more difficult to vote in general, above and beyond yeah. the ID issue itself. Well, and those were the yeah, very things that we've been talking about over the last year or two, um, because, well, over the last year especially because of the pandemic, there were some changes that were accepted because it was a pandemic and we were trying to make it possible for people to vote and social distance and you know so there was more mail-in voting and that sort of thing and it turned out to be the largest turnout in history mm-hmm. um and a lot of a lot of us in fact all of us here uh have been speculating that these things would stick around for a while and it sounds like uh, uh the gop here in michigan and in other states are trying to roll some of those things back that did lead to a larger voter turnout. Well, I, I don't know whether that's the intent. Yeah, go ahead, Henry. But I think that that's, I don't know whether that's the intent of the, the Republicans. I, I believe we want integrity in the elections uh, and, and not to inhibit anybody. But if you don't have something to believe in, how can you create a, a sustaining system that protects the integrity of the system itself? So I, and I believe the Republicans are right to do that. And I think that many Democrats agree with that issue. I think that many good Democrats believe in integrity of the election. It can't be just one side against the other. There is a mixture of what we believe. And, and right, that mixture is what we ought to be uh, striving for. You know, this this year was the first time I, I really voted absentee, and I've really become a fan of it, not just because of turnout, but because I think you're going to get a more informed electorate. The point I've made before is that it gives voters a chance to study the ballot, to go to a website and learn about the candidates or the proposals in a way that they really are not very likely to do when they walk into a voting booth and spend five or ten minutes in a, you know, marking off a ballot. So I, I really think there's a lot to be said for expanding the absentee mail-in voting. It's, it's above and beyond the turnout issue, which I think is a big issue, too. But I think it just makes for a more informed electorate when you do that. I concur. I agree. It makes a more informed electorate. And especially when you think about places where there's long lines, and now you've got Georgia saying you can't give people water <laughs> yeah. when they're in line. You know, I mean, there's, there's certain things that are just absolutely ridiculous that are in some of these laws that are really just kind of blatant that they're voter suppression. But clearly, what, 40-some states have already done this, and there's 250 or so bills of one kind or another aiming at one way or another limiting the right to vote. I mean, this is how you know that it's not, that this is a, a calculated thing that is being done in in tandem across the country, right? When it's pretty much the same bill across all the states, that's how you know that it's really probably coming from some kind of corporate entity like Alex. 
Well, uh, we're going to have to put a comma there. I have to go to break, but uh, we'll continue Armchair Politics after we let our broadcast partners squeeze in a few words. If you're streaming us, we have some messages, Hello there, too. citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dance, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki. And Henry Hatter joined by Jennifer Curland. And we were talking about uh, this national push uh, seeking new election regulations. And I think I'll stay on that topic and take things a little bit out of order here by pulling a story up from that I had planned for later. Um, as Congress, uh, or wait a minute, here we go. President Joe Biden on Friday called a sweeping elections bill signed into law in Georgia, Jim Crow in the 21st century, and an atrocity, saying the Justice Department is taking a look at the measure. In a statement released earlier Friday, Biden called on Congress to pass voting rights legislation that would counter restrictions Republicans are trying to push through at the state level across the country. Are these, are these election restrictions that are sweeping the country racially or politically motivated? Both. Yeah, I'd say I'd fall on both, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> but, but do you think any of the racial impacts are unintentional, or do you think no. that's the goal? <laughs> well, the, the one that struck me was the one about Sunday voting, was with, to, to ban Sunday voting, which is traditionally a lot of African-American churches. Uh, in Georgia, that was just an odd construction of the law to focus on Sunday voting as as one thing you wanted to ban. So, among other possibilities, I saw that one. But how would a ban on Sunday voting um, be racially motivated? Well, I, because I, in, I gather in practice, a lot of the, particularly in 2020, a lot of churches used uh, Sunday as a means to mobilize voters and get out to the polls on Sunday when there was early voting. So it was clearly aimed at that practice, from what I understand. Which is a violation of the Constitution, mixing um, politics with uh, churches. Well, we I mean, we can certainly get into the issue of taxing churches, which I'm in favor of, but <laughs> that would that would certainly negate that issue. <laughs> well, I, I, I can see to you. Taxes, right? <laughs> it, it can't be any worse than what it is, one way or the other. I'll take one way or the other, but not both ways. But, you know, it's, it's amazing how this whole issue of voting denigrates the black population, they can't pour a pee out of a boot. They got to be shepherded. Everything has to be given to them. And many uh, black Americans reject that. And uh, we don't have to have this kind of, we got to learn to accept responsibility for our actions and for what we want in this community. Uh, well, you know, I whatever. think... You know, like, churches have always been political, no matter what, right? Like, during the Civil Rights Movement, 
You had black churches, which were pro-civil rights, and you had white churches, which were against civil rights. Um, Mm -hmm. And those were being preached from the pulpit, right? Like, that has always been a (laughs) thing in the United States. And so, you know, one way or another, when you know that a specific group of people does a certain thing on a certain day, like voting on Sundays in very religious circles, and when you say for specifically larger African-American populations that on that day, no, we don't want you to be able to vote, you know, that right there is a direct target to specific people. Because when things are, this is how things have always been, right? So I don't think it's necessarily like shepherding people on a specific day and that black people need to be shepherded, you know, to go vote. I think it's more like that's just, on that Sunday before Sunday, you go voting. to church it's everything and you else go too. vote, right? Like, well, I mean, I don't disagree. We can certainly debate the religious issue, but I'm an atheist. So well, the decades... <laughs> no, no wonder. The, but for decades, um, black churches have been the civic centers in their communities. And then look at how many civil rights leaders were, were, were ministers of some kind, whether it was King or Jesse Jackson or Sharpton or a lot of others, you know, be, in many ways began their careers as as religious ministers and then moved into the civil rights area. Mm-hmm. And if you ask many black people, they will tell you that ministers were put there by white southerners, Jim Crow people, so they can control the population. If you read a lot of the black novels and stuff like that, you'll find that theme running through it. Well, and you can also even just go back to slavery and the fact that Christianity was given to African slaves by white people. Right? So, like, (laughs) the whole... (laughs) Given or preached? Well, both, both. right? Forced? Forced? Let's just say forced. Just forced upon them. And I was going to say, on the issue of shepherding, I mean, all kind of groups have done that, whether it was African-American churches or unions or chambers of commerce or the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party or Republican Party. I mean, all kind of groups, you know, shepherd their members to go out and vote in a certain way. That's hardly a unique thing in American politics. Mm-hmm. But you don't see political that. Action now, take a look committees. at the white population, guys. Look at the white population. Political it action committees. And political action committees are the shepherds of our time. <laughs> <laughs> right. So true. Yes. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, I, I, I want to. I'm going to switch something around here because I want to have more time with this uh, with this one. Um, so we'll do this one instead in the five minutes we have until the top of the hour. House lawmakers are discussing discussing drastically limiting the authority of the governor and Michigan departments to enter into agreements that would pay people to leave without barring anyone from discussing why that person left state employment. The House Oversight Committee took up two bills Thursday aimed at curbing separation agreements minutes after House Speaker Jason Wentworth, a Republican from Farwell, announced new rules that would restrict any similar agreements entered into by the House. 
Under Wentworth's changes to the House rules, a severance agreement could not include more than six weeks' pay unless it was part of a lawsuit. The House is also now required to publish an annual summary of agreements that are for more than six weeks' pay and cannot have any agreement that includes a confidentiality clause. Is applying these changes to themselves first the right way to move forward on this issue? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They should be accountable first. It's a place to start. Yeah. Yes. I mean, if you're going to ask somebody else to do it, you should be willing to do it right. yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. That's well, leadership, certainly. guys. By the way, that's leadership. Right. Um, I mean, it seems a little odd, right? I mean, I, I don't. I mean, it's been a while since I've looked into this, but six weeks of severance seems to be a little low for some positions, right? I mean, some people, especially if they have vacations that they're getting paid out for and things like that. I mean, depending hmm. on what your position is, I mean, in some ways, like it's an eight-week severance. Um, and so six just seems a little low to have like a cap on seven. I don't know. So I think, you know, I think when somebody's telling you to get out, six weeks pay is, uh, run. is, run. yeah, take it, take it and run. <laughs> well, yeah. sure. I mean, in some instances, you know, people are forced out of these positions and, and, you know, other things, but I don't know. I don't know what the, what the corporate standard is. Right, but, but I, if you I work for the so. state of Michigan, you work at the pleasure of the state. They don't have to. You don't have a contract. But are many are some of these things done to avoid lawsuits to say, all right, <laughs> go away yeah. and be quiet and don't sue us, and we'll, we'll yeah. give you some money, and we'll save it. We'll both save money on lawsuits. I think that's part of it to some degree. Um, yes. So maybe it's a way of trying to force people into a lower settlement. <clears throat> where they have to do a lawsuit, right? And some like it makes me question if it's trying to like cover things up, right? Because it's very difficult mm -hmm. to do lawsuits, especially in governmental issues. So if you're someone who, you know, is like a whistleblower or something, and you're, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, it just sounds a little weird to me. Well, and this I don't all know came out of that. It, so I'd have to like look look into like all these details, right? Yeah, I, I, it came out of, uh, it, it, it yeah. became an issue recently when uh, the governor um, had a... Health chair. Uh, yeah, the, the head the of the health department yeah. stepped down. And there was some kind of, I, I want to say $150,000 or something paid out. It was a ridiculously high amount. And the legislature started screaming foul. And and there was a lot of pushback on that particular one because there was a confidentiality uh, agreement, and neither the governor nor this uh, employee that was leaving this agency head that was stepping down um, would talk about why he was leaving the position. And so there was a lot of pushback on that. And then the legislature, who was barking the loudest, um, <laughs> had to admit to the Detroit Free Press that they had a whole stack of these things that they'd right. done. And and so they've gone back and, and really kind of cleaned their own house, which I, yeah. I think is admirable. Yes. Yeah. 
Oh, that, that much is true, I think. Well, anyway, <laughs> sure. on, on that, we have to uh, take a short break, but we have a good one coming up uh, as we open up the second half of Armchair Politics coming up after our top of the hour show ID. And uh, I hope you'll stick around from, for that. We're, we're going to talk about uh, emergency pandemic powers and pushbacks against it and all of that kind of stuff when armchair politics continues with our roundtable regulars paul rosicki and henry hatter joined by jennifer curlin so don't touch that dial don't click that mouse we'll be right Hi, i'm back. alexander zanjic don't touch that dial you're listening to tom sumner 